I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for February has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. I'd like to take a minute at the top of the show and thank our first sponsor, LegalZoom. Some things like starting a business or protecting your family with a will, they're not like other New Year's resolutions. You can't afford to blow them off. Instead instead of less snacking and more exercise, put your legal needs at the top of your list. LegalZoom helps you incorporate or form an LLC with their simple questionnaire, and it starts at just $99. Over a million entrepreneurs have done it, and 90% of customers recommend LegalZoom to friends and family. You can also create a will starting at just $69 or even a living trust quickly and easily and get peace of mind and protection. No surprise fees, no hassles, and no headaches. LegalZoom's step-by-step process was created by a team of experts in law and technology. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but can connect you with a third-party attorney and provides you with self-help services. From wills to business formations, trademarks, powers of attorney, and more, go to LegalZoom.com. For even more savings, type 5x5 into the referral box at checkout. Don't put off the things you need to do. Go to LegalZoom.com and use the discount code 5x5. Welcome to Systematic number 85. My guest this week is Adam Christensen, the host of MattCast. How's it going, Adam? Good. How you doing? I am. There's something floating in my Sazerac. In your what? My Sazerac. It's a, it's a drink. It's a rye drink. And... I figured it's Sunday afternoon when we're recording this, and there's not a bad time for a Sazerac. I, but have, like I don't a, even know what that is. It's is a, it like a beer. No, it's a, it's it's a simple sugar, a simple syrup, and then some bitters, and then a couple ounces of rye, and then you pour it into a glass rinsed in absinthe. Uh huh. And somewhere along the line, there's like a dust ball floating in mine. Oh, that's not it's, good. It's the kind of thing that when you try to get it out, it like moves away from your finger. <laughs> right. Like it like sentient somehow. <laughs> You're right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's sort of the, uh, what is it? Meniscus, right? Kind of pushes it over. <laughs> yes. Is that yes. right? If, if you, if you want to pretend it's not somehow artificially intelligent. Yes. <laughs> sorry to, sorry to break into the science of it. Maybe. And yeah. I probably got that wrong. Someone's going to eat right in and go, no, it's actually surface tension. I was going to say it's surface tension combined with the meniscus. The same thing, right? Well, yeah, I don't want to get into it because I'll be yeah. wrong as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. What do I know? <laughs> we don't have to know anything, right? So how'd you get into podcasting? How did I get into podcasting? Uh, that is... Um, a tale of me learning about podcasting back in 2004, I think it was, probably the fall, around October. And um, I just started listening to podcasts. And there were a few at the time. It was mostly like Adam Curry. There was a show called Don and Drew. Um, there was a great one. Uh, Dave Slesher does a podcast called Evil Genius Chronicles. Uh, which was kind of more like a storytelling kind of podcast that I really enjoyed. And so I was listening to all these podcasts and um, being a huge Mac, Apple fan, technology geek my whole life, I wanted to find um, some Apple Mac podcasts to listen to. And this was, I mean, in these days, there was no directory. (laughs) Can you imagine this? Like there was no real central repository um, for finding stuff. So one, finding stuff was kind of tricky. Although Adam Curry cobbled together this sort of uh, crowdsourced 
pseudo directory where there are all these nodes. It was actually based on um, OPML files. Are you familiar sure. with that OPML oh, yes. format? Oh, yes. Yeah, and I actually still do my show notes in OPM. I release a version of my show, show notes for every show in OPML format because you know back in the day that's what we used. And I actually maintained for a while the computer node. But anyway, that was much later before I got into podcasting. So uh, went out and looked for, tried to find an Apple Mac show. There were a couple of shows that were doing streaming um, streaming radio. I think Sean King's show, Your Mac Life, was around and... Um, Oh, I always forget Scott Scott Shepard's show. Um, I'm going to blank on the name of it right now. Um, but those two shows were out there, and they were kind of getting into podcasting. I think Sean might have been taking his real audio stream and sort of capturing it, recording it, and then putting it into into a, a podcast feed. But there really wasn't a podcast that was a Mac podcast. And in listening to them, I had heard a couple of people say, "Oh, yeah, it's really easy. We just use GarageBand and a USB mic." And so I thought, you know, maybe maybe this is something I can do. So I just kind of fell into it. And the weird thing was, is is I didn't really tell anybody I was doing it. Um, I just kind of I was I was working at the time at uh, Upper Deck as a as a programmer, and um, I would go out on my lunch hour in my car with my laptop in this little like Logitech USB mic and record this. Started recording this podcast, and the very first one I put out. I actually got some email on. And I think that was the thing that like hooked me immediately. Is like I there was no directory. I don't know how this person found the show even, let alone like bothered to email in and like ask a question for like the, the next <laughs> show. And so it just sort of snowballed from there, you know, just kind of really took off. So So at what point did you move out of your car and into a studio? Yeah, into a spare bedroom. I think uh i don't i don't even remember it was it was a couple months i mean if, the first shows are still out there and god they are awful i mean if you want to hear what not to, everything not to do in podcasting probably listen to those first couple episodes like the audio quality is terrible i you can tell how unexperienced and uncomfortable i am all those sorts of things so i don't even know it still baffles me to this day because i have people who email me and like yeah i listened from the very beginning it's like how did you even sit <laughs> through that stuff um but yeah i think it was a few months later i kind of uh started to get a setup and started to get better better mics and better equipment and there was a whole learning process you had to go through so i i joined um there was a guy here locally who had kind of started up a, i think it was a meetup group or some sort of uh podcast network and I started going to meetings. It actually might have been the Orange County Podcasters was the first group that I got involved with um, just north of me. So I live in San Diego, um, but Orange County had this podcasting meetup group. And so I started going there and just learned more, um, learned more about mics and audio technology because it's totally not my background at all. <laughs> not at all. What is your uh, your background then? So my formalized, you know, if we go back to college and stuff like that, I went to college, I, I did uh, graphic communications at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is printing. So like literally ink on paper, you know, doing letterpress typesetting, you know, platinum chase, like really putting leading, you know, like into type, like an actual piece of lead, right? Yeah. Um, doing So we start there. I learned all about, you know, paper technologies and and everything. I ran four color Heidelberg presses in college and um, cut Ruby Lith 
you know, for those people who know what that is, like, I think you might've mentioned actually on a recent episode, I was listening to your show that you kind of had some of that background too, right? You'd have your pasteboards and like yeah. when you were doing your graphic design, you know, remember like you do like tape lines and yep. um, hand press, you know, the, the pressed type, yeah. you know, to set headlines and stuff like that. Yeah. That's, that's totally my background. Um, and when I was at Cal Poly, they had this awesome, I was actually in a department that was focused on, um, so you'd have kind of the core program and then everybody had a concentration. So you might have a business concentration. My concentration was actually magazine and um, book design. So they had a whole design thing where I took typography courses and, and page layout courses and things like that. And they, one of the reasons um, that really hooked me into Cal Poly was when I went to check out the school and check out the program, they had just built this massive like Apple Mac 2FX lab. So they had all these 2FXs in there with all the latest software from Adobe and um, all this I think was still around at the time. And um, yeah, it was, it was interesting and fun times. I'm going to give myself away as a Mac relative newbie here, but what's a 2FX? <laughs> you know, it, the two FX was like, it was like the beast of, you know, it was like the top of the line sort of Mac at the time. And the big deal about it was it, it was a big square case. It had tons of room for like expansion cards. I forget. And they were probably new bus. I want to say new bus slots at the time, which was a, a slot technology that I believe Apple developed. And it was pretty proprietary, you know, as a lot of Apple technologies are, um, but it was just like the workhorse of the time. And I'm trying to remember them, which Motorola processor it had in there. Uh, you know, it was one of the 6800 series, of course. But um, just the big deal was it was like, it was like the machine. It, basically, it was that time equivalent of the Mac Pro now. You know, so sure. like imagine walk, walking in and you go into a lab and here's 20, you know, 30 Mac Pros sitting on the desks. Right. That just would like, be sweet. It, <laughs> exactly. So it was sort of like that, that kind of ex, that kind of experience. They that machine, I believe, the base price was around eleven thousand dollars. What year is this? This was would have been uh, nineteen ninety ninety one. Okay, around then. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're older than I thought. Just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of like a big deal to have access to to those kinds of machines, you know, it was like you got to play with Photoshop and it actually, you know, was efficient and you didn't sit around waiting waiting for forever. I mean, but re- in relative times though, you know, it was right. like nothing technology to what we have today I and mean, it's sure. the way technology progresses, but back then it was like you could, you know, you get postage stamp video at, you know, whatever 30 frames a second, you know. So 120 by 160 or whatever the, you know, whatever the size was. So you're doing, you're doing, uh, more tech based stuff while you're studying print and, and more old school techniques. Yeah. The the great thing about Cal Poly as a, as a school was it it was all the whole, all their programs are really about hands-on learning and it was, it's really important to sort of learn the history of the technology and sort of the stuff behind it, I think. And I think this is true for every, almost everything that you, you get into. Although I was trying to think, I heard a podcast recently where someone was talking about how they, they grew up just with the technology, right. With no sort of past history of, of how you did it in the, in the yeah. old days. Well, my, my last guest on this show, maybe that's where I heard was it was pure, uh, you know, pure digital photographer. That's right. That's probably where I heard it. And I talked about how I, I think there's a place for that in the transition from old to new. 
Right. But I come from the school you do, you know, not the, obviously the same school, but right. I, I, I was trained to understand the paradigms that every new technology is based off of. But at the same time, I see the frustration when you sit down to do, you know, web layout in something that's still built around the idea of paper of an eight and a half by 11 sheet. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you don't, and and I I don't, it took me forever not to want to, you know, define my CSS uh, font sizes and points. (laughs) <laughs> right yeah. so there is a certain stigmatism right it's like no that's really dumb don't do that you know don't you shouldn't be saying this is you know 24 point type for web because this, this doesn't make any sense yeah i think i would have trouble going back to print design at this point <laughs> but i mean it was it was important at the time and when when you're going into a career where you're going to be doing pre-press and pay and page layout i mean it was really important oh sure because uh, that language and that language is still heavily exists if you're doing anything for print production i think i mean it's kind of changing now but i mean it's taken until now to really start changing because now you have ebooks and you you have a lot of people just going direct digital but i mean there's still we're still in that transition phase at this point where there's there's ink on paper stuff and there's the digital stuff. And you know, well, but I mean, even I in an ebook, even in an ebook, letter spacing and letting and all of these things are still valid concepts. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, in something like, you know, there's an EPUB, I don't think you have as much control or when you're trying to deal with flexible screen sizes and stuff like that, a lot of that stuff gets thrown out the window, right? It's like you can't, you can't be that precise. You can kind of be relatively precise, but. I think EPUB as a standard was developed specifically to be ugly. <laughs> Have you it's, ever seen a good looking EPUB? No, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think because it has to kind of play to that least common denominator, which is where you lose a lot of control. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. And that's why I like the walled garden approach that Apple has a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I like the, the fact that I, I can get higher quality applications higher like iBooks has so many layout and design options because you have a fixed set of devices you're working for Mm -hmm. and you have a fixed delivery method to work with and that you know yeah it's horribly constrictive from a publication from a publishing point of view but for the end user it's such so much better of an experience yeah rules are nice right yes well and <laughs> that's know? that's a graphic designer's uh kind of motto is like working within a grid is actually freedom right it, it frees you from the whole blank page thing you have guidelines that you can break creatively Hmm. Yeah. yeah totally so so at what point did you after college you were you said you were running uh heidelberg presses in college did yeah. you go into print after that? Yeah, so <laughs> it was an interesting thing. So I'm I'm in this I'm in this magazine sort of book design, you know, program and I'm looking at well, I'm gonna be probably moving into a some sort of pre press job at in a, a print company. And I had been doing interviews with some of the big guys like R. R. Donnelly and you know, all these major print companies throughout the US. And um you know, kind of looking at my salary choices and and career choices and stuff like that. And being young, you're like, ah, I want to go out and conquer the world and make a ton of money. And so I thought, you know what? I'm, and I don't know why I thought this because I hadn't taken any business courses, I hadn't had any experience. But I thought, you know, I'm going to try and take a sales job. I'm going to go out and do print sales, right? 
and I'm going to make a ton of commissions and ton of money. <laughs> so, um, I ended up getting hired, uh, down here in San Diego actually for a, a company that printed books, uh, mostly like manuals and things like that. Um, and as a salesperson, and I tried that for probably about a year, year and a half. And I was just, I enjoyed the freedom of being out. And maybe that's what led to my current career, sort of, you know, running my own time and schedule and stuff like that. But I just was not good at sort of the hard sell thing. I think it's just not part of my personality. So I did okay, but I was kind of not really, not really enjoying it. And, um, ended up, I went to a conference and I ran into an old professor and, um, he told me about an ad agency up in Portland who was looking uh, for some pre-press people. And, uh, so I went and interviewed with them and it was, got the job and moved up to Portland. And that was awesome. Um, because I was back at a, a creative space. I think I have a real acumen for, you know, really wanting to be in some sort of creative field, um, around a lot of creative, smart people who can kind of influence me. Yeah. Um, I enjoy that sort of environment. So there I really thrive, but I was back in doing pre-press and ad layouts and, and stuff like that, uh, working on, working on the Mac. And, and how did you go from that to a point where you thought you could maybe quit everything and podcast? Is, there, podcast. A, is there a lot in between there now? Yeah, there is a lot in between there. So, you know, I'm still in the print I, and I can do the short, real short version. So I'm working at this ad agency in Portland and I'm doing pre-press. And what happened was, is that um, when I moved up there, all of the, uh, the whole art department, the art directors and, and writers and stuff like that, they had um, at the time. And when I'm trying to think, when was this? This was, I'm not even going to remember when, um, you know, kind of mid nineties or whatever, but they had, um, I think the art directors had Mac, 8100s and the writers had like 6100s which these were power pc machines and and they were really nice machines at the time but by the time i got up there they were they were getting pretty old they were getting pretty long in the tooth and so they were constantly like breaking down and this was in the horrible os9 days right when we mm -hmm. had system extensions and you had to you know troubleshoot these things and so what happened was is they sort of all discovered uh, they didn't have any in in-house it people and everybody figured out that I kind of was really into Macs and I had always been through college and I kind of knew how to get them up and running again. And we had a freelance guy that would come in if we would call him, but you know, it would take a long time for him to come and they had deadlines and things like that. So they were constantly coming to me and like, can you, can you fix this? Or these fonts aren't loading or the extensions are conflicting or my, you know, scuzzy external hard drive is not working because it's not, you know, terminated properly because they had unhooked it and hooked it back up or something <laughs> like that. And so I was, I was troubleshooting all this stuff uh, constantly to the point where it got, where I was like, I am going to lose my job because I'm not doing my job. I'm like helping everybody else get their machine up and running so that they can do their job. So I went to the president there and I said, you really need an IT guy. And so I kind of transitioned into this more IT technical realm. And at the same time too, the internet was kind of hitting. And so that, I guess that's where I really started doing side projects and I hooked up and found a couple people who needed websites built. And they found out I had a little bit of a, you know, page layout design skills, which really translated well. You know, when you do magazine book design and, and those sorts of things, translated well to doing sort of web design as much as we could design on the web back back then. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, table table based inline <laughs> CSS design works really well on a page. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I started doing a little of that on the side. And so I was really enjoying that. And I was really enjoying the, the IT stuff. And um, then my wife was from San Diego. And um, she tried to make it work in Portland, but just the weather got to her and she just really wasn't enjoying it. She was, so we decided we need to move back to, to San Diego. And so when we decided to move back, I said, you know what? I really um, think I want to go more this web development programming route when I go apply for a new job. So I kind of took that as an opportunity to change careers, to change my career path. And so I just applied for uh, like web development uh, programming jobs. So I you know, threw together, together a portfolio of some of the stuff I had been working on. And I ended up getting hired uh, by Upper Deck, the trading card company, to work on their websites and stuff like that. And it was interesting when I started there, um, the guys who hired me were real Mac guys. There were just three of us in this little, little office that we all kind of shared. Interestingly enough, it was, it was Michael Jordan's office because he was, he was like the main spokesman for Upper Deck, but he was always in Chicago and he was busy. I mean, it was kind of a token like title (laughs) and office space. And so we used, we used his office because he, he was never there. So a little little side history there. I kind of forgotten about that. But um, so I was doing the programming stuff there. And then um, my boss got let go or left, I think. And they brought this new guy on. And he was a total Microsoft uh, guy, 100% through through and through. And converted us all over to Microsoft. And so I got sent for training and uh, started doing Microsoft C-sharp.net, VB.net programming. So I did that for about five or six years. And, how, how, uh, did, how does that make you feel? <laughs> it actually, you know, it was actually probably a good thing for my, for my long-term career um, because it was at that point when I started to learn about IDEs and get more into SQL databases and more into the backend stuff. Um, I actually was hired on, one of the big reasons I was hired on in Upper Deck was they had uh, purchased this sort of turnkey um, shopping cart platform, e-commerce platform, and they wanted me to help get that up and running and get it integrated. And this is actually this is actually important to the story because I need to. This leads to why I ended up doing the podcast thing and sort of leaving to do the podcast thing. And it was that um, I implemented the system, but it had been sold and bought and sold before I got there, right? And so they really didn't have anybody on staff to sort of consult them on what a good e-com platform would be. And it was a fine platform, but it was, and I think we talked about this when I had you on my show recently, right? These turnkey systems. And so it was this turnkey system that just plugged in, but it didn't integrate with anything. So they had this sort of front end store and everything was happening manually. So then they wanted me to integrate it. And so we found this middleware platform to kind of connect it to their legacy accounting package and stuff like that. And I kind of had to cobble all this stuff to together. And this was not, I'm trying to remember what kind of technology, I don't even remember what technology it it used. It wasn't, it wasn't windows based. And so when, so I spent a couple of years building that up and then that transition happened where I got my new boss and he converted everything over to Microsoft. Well, this platform, I believe it was, it was Java based. I'm remembering, right? Um, and so he kind of hated, he hated that whole thing, but they still needed it running because they hadn't made their money back out of it. They had spent so <laughs> much money on the system and they were paying so much in contract support. And when my boss came on board, the new boss came on board, he's like, no, we're done with that. We're killing the support. 
and which meant we didn't get upgrades. We didn't get anything, you know, he wanted to die. So there was some politicking going on, I think. And I was kind of caught in the middle of it. Right. And so I had to keep this thing running and I was the only guy who knew how to make it work and that sort of thing. And that just, after a few years of that, it got really old. Right. It got, it's just like, I don't want to be cobbling this old technology that doesn't, it's not going to help my career long-term. It's not going to transition anything. And they just really weren't interested on switching, you know, cause they had paid it, I paid out all this money. And so that was kind of the, the, the end of that job. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And the podcast thing had started going. And I think by then, uh, iTunes, what was it? 4.9. Was it 4.9 that added podcasting? I'm going to get caught on that one too. I don't remember which version. Um, but they added podcasting and, and the podcast kind of blew up at that point. So I think like before that version of iTunes came out with podcasting, um, I had maybe a couple thousand people listening to the show at that time. And overnight when iTunes hit, it like tripled or quadrupled the size of the size of my audience. Nice. Yeah. And so I was really enjoying the podcast thing. I didn't know if I could make it work full time, but I thought, you know, I'll try this as doing the podcast and, and maybe a little freelance uh, web development, those sorts of things. And so I left that job and spent about just about nine months that first time around <laughs> doing that. Um, but I was really not, I don't think I was prepared to be self-employed, to be a freelancer, just uh, in terms of the more, probably more the business side of it than anything else. I totally understand. I've been there. <laughs> right. I, I could do the technology. I could do that, but I didn't know how to find clients. I didn't know how to manage my, my time. I didn't know how to manage uh, like billing, which is, it turns out really important. Yeah, you know, like it collecting tends to money be. is sort of important if you're running your own business. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people <laughs> fail. In fact, I'm going to inject a uh, a sponsor right now, and then we can talk about uh, billing failures maybe a little yeah. bit. Um, <laughs> because we get paid for sponsors, and that's important. Getting paid. Uh, our first, no, our second. What are we on? How many? We've only done one second right? sponsor. Yeah, we got to do a few. I've been talking too much. No, sorry. I, uh, I I just I reordered a few things, and now all my numbering's off. But our second sponsor today is Shutterstock.com, where you'll find over 28 million images, stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and a million video clips. Start your search at Shutterstock.com to find that perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or any other creative project. Shutterstock.com gives you a global image collection to find images from around the world to suit your project. You can choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages, and you can choose whatever fits your need and never have to compromise. If you need just one image for a blog or a mock-up, you can even do that. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you'll find something new because they add 20,000 new images every day and 12,000 videos every week. It's more affordable than you think, too, with no extra charge for large files. You can download any image at any resolution and pay only one price. They don't nickel and dime you for high-resolution images. If you need them, you can just take them. Easily curate and share pictures via Lightboxes. You can choose your favorite pictures or videos and add them to your own Lightbox gallery as you search. You can also use their iPad app to do this. Then there's something called Enhanced License Access. If you like an image and you want to run it on print or swag for your trade shows, they can get you an enhanced license for any image. They also have a huge library of vectors, icons, infographic templates, and video clips should you need any of those. If you need help at Shutterstock.com, you get an account rep dedicated to you who will answer any questions, and they also have 24-hour support during the week. 
Sign up for a free browse account at Shutterstock.com, no credit card needed. When you find the images you like and decide to purchase, use the offer code DANSENTME214 and get 25% off of any package you put together over at Shutterstock.com. So when I, I, I freelanced before I went back to corporate world uh-huh. the last time, and I did a horrible job of, I, first, I, first I, I charged too little. Yeah. <laughs> I was con- constantly cutting people deals, thinking that would help me gain business. Grow your business, yeah. And then failing to follow up on people that didn't pay right away. And and being really bad about being, well, billing to begin with, and then being a hard ass about getting paid. And that ultimately led to horrible failure. And it sounds like you kind of, maybe not yeah. to the same extent, but for the same reasons, had, yeah, it's, had a, simi- it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you're sit you're sitting there and you're trying to figure out how you're going to get work, and and you know, I didn't really have the networking thing down either. Um, I didn't really understand. I guess I didn't even think about how I was going to get business. It was just sort of like, oh, I'm just going to start this, and people are just going to come to me, and they're going to want websites. Um, and that was probably, I don't know, not not good foresight. Um, but yeah, then on the billing side of of things, same kind of thing. You know, you cut people deals, or you'd let you know you'd let stuff slide, or I, and it wasn't even that. It's just I hated following up on that stuff. You know, I did, just didn't even. I wanted to. I just wanted to code, right? Right. I want to deal with that that part of it, but it's an integral part of it. And it's important, yeah. And so, you know, nine months down the road, you're looking around, going, "Well, there went all the savings that I thought, you know, I was going to use as my backup, you know, if I had a rough month or or something like that." So, yeah, yeah I had to go back and get 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 another uh, another day job, and that's when I ended up at um, Nick Software doing. And that was another great thing, though, because it was um, another awesome creative place to be working with like some really talented program programmers and developers this time more mac focused finally and so that's what i loved about that job is like they made you know high-end plugins for uh photographers for photoshop yeah that's what i was gonna ask i I remember the name from my my days as a graphic designer with nick software yeah, That's they make these cool. awesome. Well, and they, and they, you know, I left before this happened, but you know, they got bought up by Google, and um, their technology's all been being slowly rolled into into Google stuff. So, so how many years does it take after Google buys a company for their technology to show up? Nick was was almost immediately. As a matter of fact, they're still selling the software, which is surprising to me because I thought huh. they would kill it off. They dropped the price significantly so it's much more affordable actually much more accessible to a lot of people and it's it's some amazing it's some amazing technology one of their key technologies that uh, i was always impressed by is they have um it's called u-point technology and it's for doing masks so you know as somebody who hand cut ruby lith as i was mentioning earlier to like you know mask things out with an exacto knife you know like cutting each into a thing or anybody who's worked with masks in Photoshop, right? The things are a pain to do. So what they have is these amazing algorithms where you just drop these points um, and you can do real fast selections and all kinds of uh, filtering, color corrections, apply, you know, selectively apply digital effects and things like that to your photos. And um, it's just really cool stuff. I still have, you know, my Nick plugins and I use them all the time. So so you and, were you were actually building those? You were coding at that time? No, no, no. I was. I'm a web guy, so that, okay. That's the genius. Is they had a bunch of engineers in Germany, and I think that's what Google mostly wanted was these guys <laughs> in Germany who are just like math geniuses, because that's all like you know, 
high-end math algorithms and stuff like that to figure out how to do that. You know, you're like selecting this pixel and I need to know, you know, what other kinds of pixels around these. I need to, I don't even know how that stuff works. <laughs> no, I was, I was brought on board again to do their, um, to do, they wanted to build out an e-com platform um, for selling direct. Cause it, up until that point, they had m- almost all their sales were through resellers. Um, but again, it was right around the time when everything was transitioning from, you know, boxed in-store retail sales over to more digital distribution of software. And so they wanted a platform that they could, could uh, sell direct. And, and so we built a custom uh, e-com platform. And I think that was another appeal with that job was not doing a turnkey thing, being able to write something from the ground up that was going to work for the company I was working for. So um, it was myself sort of running the project. And then we brought in one guy uh, freelance to help out and we built a shopping cart based on Zen framework um, from the ground up. And then after that, after that was deployed and in place, um, we ended up integrating it through um, salesforce.com for like customer relationship management and um, sales tracking and, and inventory and uh, billing and all that stuff. So at what point during that, where did you take your second stab at, at, at Matt cast or at, I'm sorry, (laughs) at independence. So that was when I was at, at at Nick. Um, So I was at Nick for about three years doing all that stuff. And it was great. I mean, that was a lot of fun and stuff like that. But I think I just sort of started to get antsy again about working for someone else and going, you know, I think I learned a lot that last time and I've learned a lot since then. And, uh, and, and then I think the other thing was, um, and I sort of mentioned this in the, in the pre thing I had spent that uh, probably, before I started at Nick, but um, when the podcast really started to take off, I started to realize that it might be a good source of income for me, or I, I might be able to turn it into a full-time thing. And I just love, you know, I still love the podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do, just reaching out, connecting with people. Um, and I think it's because I was always involved in Mac user groups and I, I like training and teaching and learning and, you know, that sort of stuff. And so I really wanted to extend that. And, and, um, it started to be people were paying attention to podcasting all of a sudden after iTunes hit and specifically like advertisers and people. So there was a lot of conversation in the podcast community about how can we monetize? How can we um, sort of push this thing forward and, and make it a real uh, business, you know, that people can do for a full-time job. So I started spending the next couple years trying to figure out a way to find someone who would help sell ads on the show. Cause I had built up a big enough audience that I think I had a marketable product and so I went around and I talked and there were some ad networks forming and things like that. But I really felt the key to the success of podcasts and podcast advertising was going to be making sure that the fit was right for the, for the audience, you know, more so than just blasting out random ads. The, the real key was making sure that um, the relationship that I had built up with my audience was maintained because I, I value that a lot. I mean, these people I consider sort of extended, extended friends. I mean, they're, they're my extended community. And so I care a lot about what they think. And, and, you know, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just, you know, bringing them totally irrelevant, annoying advertising, I guess yeah. is what it comes down to, but I wanted to be able to make money at it. And they were all supportive of it too. The community was like, yeah, we want you to do this more too, because we really like the show. And so it was sort of striking that balance. And I wanted to make sure I did it right. And not only right for them, but also right for 
the podcast or, or for the advertisers, right? Because, you know, if advertisers run ads and pay you a bunch of money and they don't get any business, that, that doesn't work for them either. And they're just going to go away. And with podcasting being, you know, and so then I also felt I had a really responsibility to do this right just for podcasting as an industry in general. Because if we don't do this right, then, you know, it's just going to all fall apart. No one's going to make money. That's so, a, that's a lot of responsibility right there. Yeah. And well, and when you're kind of in something early, I mean, I was in 2004, so I've been doing this almost 10 years and, you know, it, I really consider it like a whole new, um, form of media that's it's merging now with some of the more traditional forms of media. And I think it's kind of getting mixed up and, and jumbled, which I think is, is a good thing. Um, because people are more and more seeing it. It's just, this is con, you know, this is entertainment. These are shows, this is content. It doesn't really matter how it's distributed back in the early days. It was like a big sort of, Oh, we're, we're the indie guys when, you know, and you're old school media and stuff like that. But, um, but when you're sort of building a new, what, I was seeing at the time as this new market. Yeah, it was, it was like, yeah, we got to do this. We got to do this right. If we're going to really sort of have this revolution and change things. So I spent all this time trying to find the right uh, company. And luckily I did. I found a, a great agency. It's actually Dave Hamilton's uh, company, Backbeat Media. They go out and find advertising for the show. And it was a great fit because he was already well entrenched in the Mac community. So he understood the kinds of people that I was trying to reach and also had the kind of connections on the Mac side for the types of companies that I felt were relevant to sort of talk to my listeners about their products and stuff like that. And it's been awesome ever since then. So that happened. So I was, I was starting to make some pretty good money with the podcast. So getting back to the Nick thing and deciding to leave and try again, I realized, okay, I can, I can try this again. I really, I think at the time wanted the podcast to be the full, full-time job. And I, I think I still do. Um, but reality is it's, it's not paying all the bills quite yet. And um, so I'm filling in with the programming and stuff like that. But I had become better about the business side of it too, because I learned those lessons. And I knew right from the beginning when I was starting up, okay, you got you to gotta find a way to be on top of your billings. You got to find a way to do better networking and find new clients um, you know, so I spend a lot of time getting out to different meetup groups and, and stuff like that. And, um, a lot of my business now on that side comes from, um, I can do design cause like I said, I have a little bit of history in that, but I really don't enjoy it enough to be really, really good at it. So I tend to work a lot with, um, outside designers and, and uh, UI guys. And <laughs> I do that too now. Yeah. I've, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm far enough removed from my own college education at this point that I trust other people who have actually been designing for the last 10 years to do it for me. Yeah. I mean, at the same time though, I, I, I do, I feel lucky because I have that background. I I'm one of those rare breed of coders who I can actually make a decent looking page, like something that somebody's, you know, the average person's going to look at and go, Oh, that's not that, that actually looks pretty nice. Yeah. Um, but I'm also savvy enough or I've been doing this long enough to know that, you know, there are people well beyond my skills who are probably better suited for it and can make something just outstanding versus just good. And I'm mm -hmm. the type of person that I like my projects to look outstanding and I like my clients' projects to look outstanding because that makes them really happy. So I tend to try and push them that way. About the only time I'll get back into design is if I'm dealing with a client where they they just don't have the the kind of budget to hire someone else and you know, I, and I tell him up front, I said, you know, I can kind of put it together, but we're going to be kind of settling on the, in my opinion, settling on the design side. 
little bit. <laughs> and then and then you find out that the client really has absolutely no idea what good design looks like and they think what you do is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then you're embarrassed to tell your friends about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know yeah. that story. Yeah. It, it it again, it turns out okay, but it's like, oh, this could be better. You know, well, I, I know it could be better. So what you need is to write a very niche Mac application that appeals only to nerds and only a subsect of nerds and then sell it and find out that there's actually so many of those people mm-hmm. that you can continue making money on that <laughs> well after you've sold to enough customers that you think covers the demographic entirely and the sales keep coming in every day. <laughs> I did that. I did that. What it worked. We, yeah. Marked, marked. Is yeah, that's very, what I assumed you were referring to. It's so niche, but it's it like yeah, there, I have enough sales every day to make me consider my development career successful. Yeah, which means podcasting can be a hobby, although it's becoming more than that. Yeah, I might have. Uh, I shouldn't spill the beans on that yet. Yeah, we're we're. I think we're in. We're probably in both in a similar thing where it's like this mix. And I, so here's here's the other thing that I wrestle with, and I don't I don't know if if you wrestle with because I like both, and I enjoy both immensely the podcasting and the development work. Yeah, yeah. And but at the same time, there's that old adage about you know sort of focusing on one thing if you want to be really great at something. So I think that's part of the reason why I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a pretty good designer an okay designer. I'm kind of an okay programmer. I'm pretty good podcaster, but I often like sit back and wonder like if I just cut, you know, down to one thing, could I be really great? Or am I just, would I still just be mediocre at, you know, or okay at that thing or pretty good? I'm fully aware that in my case, I have too short of an attention span to actually be, be good too. at one thing. <laughs> I can be kind of good at a lot of things. Yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm competent in, in way more areas than the average person is, but I'm not nearly as good in any one of those areas as any of the specialists are. Yeah. And I'm okay see, with that. That's, that's the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life. But so you don't think that if you just like really like cut out every other, see, that's I what can't. I wonder. And I maybe can't. I don't. If I try to focus <laughs> on just one thing, yeah. I, I, I lose interest in it. It, it, I have to be able to switch modes constantly to stay you afloat. And, you and I might be, have the same exact personality, <laughs> I think. Well, yeah, given, given totally our me. almost identical histories. Yeah. We may. Yeah. That's weird. It sounds like a sponsor break time though, doesn't it? Yep. I think our third sponsor will be Squarespace. We have four sponsors today, so I'm, I'm picking them as I go. Um, but our third one is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. And so for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code VALENTINE. See, that was short and sweet. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust so you can really create your own space online. Everything is drag and drop, so it's easy to add content from your desktop, even rearrange elements of content within a page. Squarespace makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design. You can easily connect Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and many more web and social services. 
Squarespace also has e-commerce on their platform, so if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can in just a few minutes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need some help, over 70 Squarespace employees are in the customer care team, which is based in New York City. They're available for live chat during the week and have super fast email support throughout day and night. Listen up, Squarespace fanatics. Your time has come. You can now apply to be part of the Squarespace team. Squarespace is looking to hire 30 engineers and designers by March 15th. This means they're inviting potential candidates, and yes, that's you, and their spouses, to be New Yorkers for a weekend, completely on them. So if you want to hang out with little Ryan and gaze upon his long, luxurious locks in real life, check out beapartofit.squarespace.com to learn more. I don't know who little Ryan is, but I assume that people who really want to work for Squarespace will know what I'm talking about. Um, so as I said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free, no credit card required. And if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure to get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code Valentine. So thanks to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and Systematic. Let's do top three. Top three. Top three picks for the week. And uh, you get to go first with your first one. I get to go first. Uh, You know, uh, so a side I haven't talked about is I am a huge uh, fan of like board games. Okay. And card games and those sorts of things. And this is an interesting one because there's this great card game that was developed solely for iOS, for the iPad. And it's called um, Dead Man's Draw. It's like this pirate-themed game. And it's basically you have these uh, suits of cards and and they're numbered two through seven. And you just basically have a draw pile and it's, it's one person against another person. And you draw a card and depending upon the suits, what suit it is, you can do different kinds of actions. So, for example, if it's like a cannon, you get to blow up you know your opponent's card or if it's a sword you get to swashbuckle and steal one of their cards um that sort of thing it's like this back and forth thing and it's kind of like a press your luck game so you flip a card and you get to choose i can take another card and i can throw it out on the table but if i get two of the same suit in my little row i lose all the cards if at any point you want to drop out, you basically collect the cards. So that's kind of the basic mechanics of the game, but there's all kinds of things that you can do with the different card types in terms of actions and stuff like that. Um, really, really fun, really, really addicting if you're into card games and anything like that at all. But what's, what's really even cooler for a guy like me, who's like a meat space, you know, board game kind of guy, it was like immediately when I saw this game, I'm like, I want, I want this as a real game. Like, why isn't this a real game? You know? And, um, they had tried doing a, kick, a Kickstarter to actually turn it into a, a real game. Because I guess when they were doing the development, and I've heard this from other developers, this is a common thing where you do like paper prototyping. Have you ever done paper, oh, yeah. paper prototyping on any year? Yeah, so they had done paper pro- prototyping. So they had a set of cards that they actually would play with as they're working out the game mechanics and stuff like that. And so they tried to Kickstarter it. It didn't make it. But then what they did was... Um, they basically open sourced the game. They they gave out a PDF of all the cards. And so with online on-demand printing now, um, actually through the website boardgamegeeks.com, there's a whole thread over there. And somebody took all the card artwork and actually made a real nice set of cards that you could send over to um, an online printer and actually have a set printed out. So I actually have now a physical set and we actually p- play for real. 
with a real set of uh, playing cards. Cards Against Humanity did the same thing. Yeah. 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 So Dead Man's Draw, it's free. Yeah. I was just, uh, I was looking it up and it is free. And that's, and there's no, and and there's no like in app purchase. Oh, I guess there is in app purchase, but it's, I've never bought anything through it. I take that back. There is because you can get, um, Gold multiplier, 4,000 gold, plunderer trait, 3,000 gold, premium pack, 9,000 gold, Davy Jones lager. There's a bunch, uh, but ranging from 99 cents to five bucks. Because I hate that sort of thing. I, I won't put up with it. So this one's not bad. I've been able to play. I guess I did maybe hit after hours and hours and hours sort of a, a limit where I couldn't go further in terms of my opponent. But you can continue to play you know, the same opponent. You earn like traits which give you extra abilities that change the gameplay a little bit. Um, the longer you play, or if you want to speed it up, I guess you can buy stuff. But I've right, well, and see, that's the that's the line for me. Is if if buying stuff means speeding it up, that's fine. If you want to jump ahead, right. but if you have to buy stuff in order to progress, yeah, in no, the no. game, then then I feel like just charge me up front for the game. That's I'd, yeah, I prefer yeah. to pay and, you and it's more. Not really, uh, but I've even hit. I've even hit. I don't consider this. I haven't found this one to be egregious, at least. In in my opinion, I'm sure everybody has their different sort of threshold for this sort of thing, but it's not egregious. Like I used to play. You remember the game like We Rule? It, they, they they it was like a you know castle building kind of game. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, to get resources, you know, you'd have to wait a certain amount of time. And so what happened was, as the game got more and more popular, they kind of kept for newer features. They kept extending the amount of time you would have to wait to the point where it was like you couldn't even play the game without spending money because you were going to have to wait five days for, you know, your castle to get built or whatever, you know, that resource to get generated. And it was just like, forget it. You know, I feel like, I feel like that waiting thing is a good tact if you don't push it like that. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, like, um, gun bros. Mm -hmm. If you, you, you get a series, like you earn this like kind of, uh, crystal and currency, whatever, while you play, but then you have to put it into a bank to turn it into coins you can spend. Mm-hmm. And you have like five different banks you can choose. One of them is ready in five minutes. One of them takes 24 hours, maybe longer. I don't remember. But you can, it, it gives you an excuse to stop playing the game for the day. Right. And, and a reason to come back the next day. I, I feel like that's kind of cool in a game. But when they use that to leverage in-app purchases... Yeah. yeah, that would be annoying. There's like a weird line that yeah, that's well, in there. I, think, and I don't know where it is, and it, I think it varies depending on the platform and, and the type of game it is too. I think you know, the so. basic rule is just don't don't jerk your customers around. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think as long as you <laughs> as long as you're providing a means for someone to advance with hard work instead of dollars, I think you're okay. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like Dead Man's Draw does that nicely. Well, yeah, and if you don't like it, just go print yourself a set of cards there and you, you never go. have to open the app again. You can play all you want. Go to Russia. <laughs> um, sorry, what was... Oh, I forget. I think it was a Daily Show bit. They had go to Russia from The Simpsons. Never mind. Never mind. Um, my, my first pick is... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to match your pick and, uh, and pick an iOS game. Uh, that is called Sketch Party, Sketch Party TV. Have you seen this? Oh, I've heard about this. No, I ha- I mean, I've heard about it. I've been meaning to pick it up. 
I need to invite some friends over. I played it by myself, which is completely pointless because what it is is Pictionary on your Apple TV and your iPad or your iPhone. And you can, you basically, you, you hook up your phone, you mirror it over AirPlay, and then you pass the iOS device around and you draw the word that it gives you. And when someone guesses it, you flip the page on the phone and pass it around. And it's, it's very much exactly Pictionary, but no great big easels, no markers, no pencils, and no having to stand up, which for some people is, you know, a pain. This is just, it's a sit on the couch and play game. And for a group, and like I said, I have yet to actually play with real people, but I think it would be an ideal party game. And it's $5 with no in-app purchases. Yeah, I think the only reason I haven't picked this one up yet is because I've been too lazy about, well, too lazy and just physically not strong enough. <laughs> I'm an old school guy. I have a, I still have a tube TV in my living room, <laughs> although I have like LCD TVs all around the house. Like, yeah. you know, and I, so I want to take the one that's in my office, the LCD that's in my office and put it in my living room. But I can't move the 200 pound TV. I know. And I, worst, it, worst I've ever hurt my back was moving one of those TVs. <laughs> um, and, but the problem with that TV is that it, it only has the, you know, the, what are the component, the red, right. green, and blue. Yeah. So I have my Apple TV one hooked up to that TV, but I can't hook up my Apple TV two. So the Apple TV one obviously doesn't have airplay. So if I can I, ever get a, a TV in my living room that actually has airplay, that's <laughs> when I'll probably buy this game. I have the exact same problem, except for <laughs> my tube TV with the Apple TV one is in the basement where it's not as big a deal. My living right. room is fully set up with a Roku and Apple TV and an LCD TV. So I don't, I don't have to fret about it as much. It doesn't make me feel <laughs> as guilty, but I do have the exact same little setup gnawing in my brain. I got to get rid of that. Yeah. It needs to be updated. And that TV costs like when it was new, it was like $700. Oh yeah. And I can replace it with something (laughs) 10 inches bigger for half that now. Yeah. It's crazy. I hate those TV. (laughs) I I I got to find a friend and just like, Hey, I'll give you a six pack of beer or something. Come (laughs) over and, We'll move some, this thing some out young here. spry friends. Actually, what I really need to do is just go to Best Buy and buy another LCD TV. Because again, that's that's the other thing that I was thinking is like, wait a minute, if I just buy one for like three hundred bucks, I think Best Buy will come in and like take the old TV away. I'd pay someone three hundred bucks just to take mine away, even if I didn't get a TV out of it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That's like I just buy a third one and swap them out. That's be brilliant. Done with it. I don't know why you haven't done that yet. <laughs> That's exactly the answer. All right. So, so what's your second pick? Um, so my second pick actually is I am, and this wasn't even a new, you know, it sounds like maybe I did this cliche wise, but I didn't. It's not a New Year's resolution, but I, I just decided I want to get back in better shape because I used to be a, um, a swimmer. So that was another thing I did in college is I was a long distance swimmer and competitive swimmer for, for years and years. And, um, so I wanted to get back into swimming. And so I found a gym near me and I just signed, signed back up. Um, but frankly, when you're not swimming on a team, like when you don't have a, a coach or someone like doing a plan, you know, I'm just getting in the water and doing laps. Basically, it's just like running around the track. Um, I like, I, I want to have music. I get 
I get bored. I want something to kind of give me a pace and a rhythm and stuff like that. And so I've known about um, H2O Audio. They've been around actually for a really long time and I've had some of their other products in the past, but they basically make iPod enclosures that you can, that are fully waterproof and earbuds and stuff like that are 100% waterproof and you can take in the water. And so um, when I started to work out again, I went to look to see what their new offerings were and they actually have a product called, I think it's the X1 Interval swim solution, I think is what they call it. Um, and the problem with some of their products in the past is they were normally like these armband things that you would sort of strap on your, your arm, but then you'd have the cable. And like, so for like swimming, if you got the earphone cable running to your arm, it was kind of always getting in the way. It was really cumbersome and stuff like that. But what's cool about this one is that it takes a fifth gen iPod shuffle. You just strap it in there and then it's small enough that you run your goggle, um, strap through the through the unit and it just straps to the to like to the back of your head and then you have these short little earbuds that just go right into your ears so nothing to get in your way and it's awesome it makes my workouts so much more enjoyable because i could just get in the pool throw on the headphones throw on some great you know music that i can load on the ipod before i leave the house and away i go and so i can knock out an hour of workout without without much effort. It looks super cyborg too. Like you got like something jacked right into your brain. Exactly. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a little funky and I was worried about comfort, but I don't even, I don't even notice it. And it, it took a little while to get, you know, you kind of got to reach up behind your head and do the controls. But I mean, an iPod shuffle, it's easy, right? You got forward, backward, volume up, volume down, play pause. You know, it's <laughs> like, there's not a lot you have to think about. So yeah. And it's, it works awesome. It's just, it's just great. It's light and I don't notice it. And, do you think Google Glass will ever come out in swim goggle form? <laughs> that would be awesome too. You know, uh, well, Oakley does has like a set of skiing goggles. Have you seen those with like I, a heads up display in them? I don't keep up much with the uh, sporting, skiing, sport, snow, sporting, snowboarding, and stuff like that. So you can like, you know, you can like track your speed downhill, and it like gives you all these heads up stats and stuff like wow. that. About yeah, and I think it also it it will also I think it might have your your phones and i think you can run your music and stuff through it wow that might actually make me interested in snowboarding again (laughs) yeah i think there's again they're super expensive but i saw those i'm like oh that's real that's cooler than google google glasses you know (laughs) because no one's going to notice i mean you're on the slopes you're wearing giant goggles anyway right yeah and and it probably doesn't transmit all your information to potential advertisers (laughs) that i don't know yeah we can't (laughs) prove it um but these uh, these interval four G waterproof cases are about one hundred and ten. Yep, uh, which isn't bad. iPod not included, of course. Actually, I think I got mine for about seventy. I think it was about seventy bucks on Amazon. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at swim in swimming shops. So I yeah, I'd check it on Amazon for sure. I'll put a link to it on Amazon. All right. So my second pick, it's similar again. Uh, this one's called the, well, the app is called GeoHopper, but what my pick actually is, is the Blue Station, which is, it's a little USB dongle that creates an iBeacon. Uh, it's a, a Bluetooth, uh, low energy beacon that you can use with iBeacons aware applications to get very precise proximity, uh, readings from an iPhone or, or an iPad with BTLE. And um, I'm working on integrating this into a home automation system. But right now, uh, the app GeoHopper, 
is is directly tied into the Blue Station, and that's B L E U, Blue Station, and uh, and GeoHopper lets you set up uh, pins where you have beacons or where anyone else has beacons, and you can have it read your friend's proximity and tell you when, like, say you're sitting in a coffee house and there's a beacon there and you have a pin. And uh, even if there's not a beacon, you can actually do it with location only. But uh-huh. then when a friend enters a zone that you set, you know, a proximity to where you are, it'll it'll notify you that so-and-so has entered this zone. And then you can, you know, look out the window and make sure you signal to where you're seating or where you're seated. and. Uh-huh. You can see when when people when family members come and leave the house uh, when they get within a certain range of home, so you can you know clean up real fast. And, <laughs> do they do they have to be using the app also? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This has to be a mutual agreement between people. Um, if you don't want someone to know when you arrive home, you would not run the app. But right. uh, but yeah, the blue station cost me. I think. It was not expensive, really. I gotta look now. Let's see. Buy now. Thirty so actually thirty nine dollars. A little hardware, a little hardware device. Yeah, it's a tiny little. I mean, it's no bigger than the actual USB port itself. It just sticks out about a eighth of an inch. Yeah, and I run I, it on my always on mini. Because I mean, what, what's one of the cool things about the iBeacon technology is like the the phone or whatever device you're running the software on is also inherently then an, a beacon as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I was just reading today about, and a lot of people are making fun of it, but I, you know, I, I thought this was kind of brilliant. Uh, Clorox has a, an app called socket at like Clorox, the bleach company. Yeah. And have you read about this? I heard about it. I don't remember yeah. what it was. Though. Well, it's supposed to replace the the classic like sock on the door. Yeah, you know thing. So instead, you know, you and your college buddy or roommate or whatever would each run this this app. And so if you're if you're you know doing your thing, you turn it on and it uses i you know it sets up your phone as an eye beacon. And when they get close, it's like, hey, don't you know, don't come in. <laughs> that is brilliant. It, oh, it's know, honestly I, the <laughs> the marketing possibilities for this are what most people are focusing around right now. Right, like the usage in stores and museums and. And things where you're guiding customers through, uh, you know, a tour or a, a purchase, et cetera. But the possibilities for everyday users to do this outside of any kind of retail environment is actually pretty yet to be explored, I think. But I mean, it's, so it sounds like your, your pick is the same. You could have the same kind of application. Yes. You know? It's like, Hey, if I've turned the, uh, if I've turned the geo, what's it called? A geo. Well, the Geo Hopper is the name of the app. Yeah, yeah. So you would you would uh, set up a notification, and you can you can set up web hooks and everything, so <laughs> that when someone enters a room, it could send you could like have it trigger IFTTT, right, and actually do like any number of actions based on someone entering or exiting a zone. It sounds like a parent's worst nightmare too, or or best friend <laughs> if they did it right. <laughs> I guess it could go both ways. I'm thinking more of the kid getting a hold of it, like <laughs> to know, hey, they're, the mom's twelve blocks away. Near, Everybody near, out. Near, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, the potentials are endless. <laughs> cool. All right, so let's see. That was two for me. What's yep. your third pick? 
my third pick actually is going to be something that uh, I got for Christmas. And I don't know if anybody said, I'm assuming maybe somebody's picked this in the past. But um, so I talked about, you know, sort of my background, you know, programming software. And I've always been a software guy, but I've always been fascinated by hardware stuff and uh, doing like hardware integration. And now that we have stuff like it, the pick is going to be the Raspberry Pi. Do you, do you have a Raspberry Pi by any chance? I don't. I've always been oh. uh, curious about it. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm totally I got one for I got one for myself for as a self Christmas present and I haven't spent too much time with it. Um but it is just, you know, just in the little bit I've been playing around with it. It's amazing, you know, to have it like this little $35 computer that then I can uh hardware hack cuz I ended up getting a kit, uh, make makes a kit and I picked it up at Radio Shack. I think I want to say it was around 100, 130, 30 bucks. It includes the Raspberry. So the Raspberry Pi, if you just buy it itself, I think is about $35 somewhere in that price range. And I think they have a couple different models now. Um, but this kit had like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a case for it, you know, because it comes just as a bare board. So it had a little case you could put it in. It had something called, and I didn't know what it was at the time, but it's called a um, cobbler. Which okay. is like a ribbon cable that you can plug in to the uh, I/O ports on it, and it allows you to to pin it into like a um, a breadboard, so you can do like prototyping, like hardware prototyping, off of it, and then program against it. So then you just program in you know like Python or and you can do multiple languages. I was playing around with Python, right? Um, and so I've been able to like put together a little hardware board. The first thing that I messed around with was just making a, um, like a sound effects trigger sort of thing. So wrote up a, wrote up a script and interfaced with the, you know, some buttons and some lights and stuff like that on the hardware. And so now I can push a button and, you know, play star Wars movie quotes or whatever (laughs) I want, you know, whatever, whatever AIF or, you know, wave files I find online that I want to mess around with. But like just being able to do that for a guy, a guy like me, it's like, Oh, I'm actually, you know, interfacing with hardware now and uh it, it made it possible and i'm having so much fun with it before that i also i also have an arduino I'll just throw that out there so i'm totally kind of becoming addicted to this little hardware hacking kind of stuff i totally it, want to get into that i feel like i feel like <laughs> i would have a lot of fun with that yeah i mean and, and i'm just seeing all these different projects so i you know a recent project i've been working on too is like plaques i'm starting to get into plaques and stuff like that and there's actually a version of plaques for the raspberry pi so you can actually turn the raspberry pi into into a plex client too so i was gonna that's gonna be another thing that i'm gonna it's on my list to just mess around with I, the problem is time i mean it's like one of those classic things if i i could do this all day if, if yeah. i had the time but you know unfortunately or fortunately, there's responsibilities that I have. <laughs> However you want to look at it. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, uh, I, I do think if I had more time, I would be doing that already. But it is definitely something I want to get into prior to retirement age. Oh, here's another cool thing for, for the geeks out there. Actually, a guy in my iOS group, um, he, he runs a small company with another guy. They're actually using Raspberry Pis as, um, as Git uh, servers. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's that seems a little flaky, like <laughs> yeah. like re- re- reliability wise. <laughs> but then again, I have no idea. So yeah, just the fact that you can do it is it is cool. that is pretty awesome. <laughs> so he came in and presented to the iOS group about running running Git on on a Raspberry Pi. I would have liked to have seen that presentation. Yeah. All right. Well, my third pick is a combination of 
diazolidinyl urea, boric acid, glycerin, methylparaben, pro- <laughs> propylparaben, aroma materials, and colorants that add up to something called CyberClean. And it's a ball of slime for cleaning keyboards. And uh, it does an amazing job. I bought this little bottle of chemicals, a little tub of chemicals, uh, probably five years ago. And I'm still using the same one. Like it just keeps going. And it, it basically, it's a gelatinous blob that you smear onto your keyboard and then peel off. And as it peels off, it, it uses all these nasty chemicals to pull all of the bits and, and dust and even like remove dirt, uh, remove like stains between your keyboards. We have little like coffee splatters and things. It'll pull them all off and, and it doesn't mess up the, the actual type on the keyboard or anything. It's not like such strong stuff that's going to like burn your keys. Mm-hmm. It's basically just like using like air, uh, like a spray cleaner, but it actually digs into all those hard to reach places and doesn't actually put any liquid into your keyboard. I really, I use it every time that I sit down and realize there's a smudge on my monitor. I go into like cleaning mode and I have to clean like all of my components at that point, which (laughs) is bizarre given how messy the rest of my office is. My (laughs) monitor and my keyboard are usually pretty spotless. Um, But yeah, that is... That's a great. It's a great tool for that. The what's the? Uh, there's a, it sounds like it's also maybe a great tool for uh, contraceptive too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't or, know if or, you can have or any making, kids after or, or making sure you never touching that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's actually <laughs> relatively harmless stuff. Yeah, I think so. um, yeah. Uh, I think that someone who uses it religiously might never have to worry about contraception. <laughs> But um, what there's a there's this thing I got. They sell that at Think Geek or something like that. Yeah, right? I think that's where I got it. Um, but I I got to, at the same time it was at MacWorld. I picked up a this carbon based cleaner for my iPad, and it's like this square, and I can't remember what it's called. It's a square of like actual carbon like dust that you rub across your iPad, and it absorbs all the oils. Mm-hmm. And then you just go through with a brush and just wipe off the dust. I'm gonna have to figure out what that is. That might be another pick of the week because that thing was amazingly effective. Really? Yeah. That sounds like the kind of thing where it's like they're selling you a pill of goods. Yeah, I thought the same thing, and then the guy's <laughs> like, "No, give me your iPad," and he showed it to me, and, and he's like, "Rubber, rub, scratch." <laughs> no, it came out <laughs> spotless, and I was like, "I'll take one." And I, this I still use is it, it. Is it hard? No, it's like yeah. a it's like a soft pad with with the dust in it. Oh, it's like embedded in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, no, I'm it's sure very like smooth. this brick of carbon. No. <laughs> rubbing. It's a chunk. You just take the corner and solo. scrape away at fingerprints. <laughs> no, not carbonite. <laughs> carbon. Um. Yeah. So so cleaning with tools. CyberClean. That's my third pick. I'll have to look up a price on it because I didn't bother yet. Uh, but I think you can find it at ThinkGeek. All right. Well, that's three and three. I have one sponsor left to read you, and that is our favorite hover. Um, not our favorite hover, but our favorite comma hover. Love hover. Um, hover. Hover. <laughs> hover. Hover. 
Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a domain name for it, you know, something catchy, something memorable, something that represents your online identity, and Hover gives you exactly the tools you need to get the job done. You'll find the perfect domain for all your ideas to live at, and so you can start creating them and move on to the next thing on your to-do list. You don't have to be an expert to take control of your own domain. Even if you're using a web developer to create your site, owning your own domain means that you don't have to depend on anyone else in the future to maintain, protect, and renew your domain. What I love the most is that Hover is honest. There are no upsells and they don't try to get you to dish out for any services you don't need. They just give you powerful tools for finding and quickly registering domain names. You can get great services such as valet transfers, Google Apps, and a ton of new top-level domains to pick from if you need them. You can get 10% off your first purchase with the offer code, and we're going to go with um, so much snow uh, (laughs) because there are literally spots in my backyard where it is over three feet deep right now. Um, So use the offer code so much snow, and uh, thanks to Hover for supporting Systematic and 5x5. All right. The irony of that code is that uh, on my end of the world, we're entering a drought. Yeah, <laughs> I've got some extra uh, precipitation if you can need you, it. Can you mail some? Can you like FedEx some out here? I'll just throw can... some snowballs at you. I have. Oh, that should have been my pick. I have California snowballs. What? <laughs> there is. Is that called water? No. If you go to, I think it's snowanytime.com. I think is where I got these things. Oh, I got to look it up now. That's not right. Um, California snowballs. No, no, I, that's my term for them. But it, it's um, there are these snowballs. Oh, it's snow time anytime. Found it. <laughs> and they're like these little soft snowballs. And what's what's really weird about them is you know how when you you form a snowball and you kind of compact it, there's that kind of crunching. I'm familiar with sensation it, yes. you get. These do that. You like you like <laughs> mash them a little bit, and they kind of they crunch a little bit. But they're light, and you can throw them around in the house. So we we have snowball fights all the time in my living room with these things. Oh man, <laughs> you Californians! <laughs> exactly. This is, what, this is what we had to do. We got to turn to synthetic snow. Seriously, I let my pit bull out in the backyard, and she hits one of these drift points. And she, <laughs> it's drops. like a dolphin. Like you see her like <laughs> leaping out every once in a while. It's funny. Um, it. But anyway, uh, you can be found at Mattcast just about everywhere. Yeah. Mattcast on Twitter, Mattcast on app.net, Mattcast.com on the interwebs. Um, anywhere else you want to mention, or should we stick with Mattcast everywhere? Uh, I guess the only, probably the other thing to mention is, um, well, probably two things. So uh, I told you about on my show, uh, Get Appler, which is a site we're trying to promote um, for doing app discovery. So it's more social related uh, app. You can go on there. You can have it. Basically what it does is it'll pull in all your uh, app purchases that you've bought online. And you can you can hide purchases because I know that's a big thing for people. You can say, I don't want people to know I bought this thing. But anyway, uh, and it sets up a like, a profile of you and your apps. And then you can follow friends or follow other people who you trust their opinion on and see what apps they're buying. But not only that, you can kind of quickly give it a a simple rating. You either say, I recommend this app or I don't recommend this app. 
Um, there's also a so-so for those few apps that you're like, eh, it's okay. And then you can comment on it. But more importantly, people can also ask you, you know, they, they, you can, there's threaded like discussions that can happen around the app. So it, the idea was we were trying to, and it's Michael Johnston, uh, the guy who runs another podcast I'm on called We Have Communicators, which is more iOS focused. We were both frustrated with, um, you know, not being able to find stuff on the app store and just the fact that the way we find apps, and I think most people do, is through word of mouth. So it was like, how can we extend this, you know, more online? And we didn't really see too many people doing it. I mean, there are a few other solutions out there, but um, we kind of, the thread conversations was key and also just making the process of getting apps in there super easy. So you don't have to do any app entry if you don't want to. You can just plug in your, your information, uh, your iTunes credentials, and it'll grab everything from your account. And that stuff's not stored, by the way, for people who are worried about security. It's just used to get the, the token to, to make the request to get the information. And nice. then it's done. It's going to sucks everything in. Nice. So, yeah, yeah, I have that loaded up. I, I keep meaning to try it. I see yeah, that you, don't, you don't recommend well. Don't recommend what? Well, it's, you're on the front page as a, as a don't recommend well. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Uh, Get Appler, A-P-P-L-R dot com. Yeah. And what was the other one you were going to mention? Uh, just the We Have Communicators podcast, okay. which I kind of got in there. Is, <laughs> is that a yeah, reference I, to like I, I Star Trek? A, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's all about iOS devices, basically. iPads, iPhones, stuff that's not not a Mac. So we look at those, you know, Steve Jobs classically said it's an internet communicator, I think, when he launched the iPhone. So nice, kind of playing on that. Got it. It's in the show notes. Cool. So yeah, everyone, check the show notes for all the links we've been talking about. And uh, as always, you can drop off uh, a short audio greeting to me at uh, brettterpstrad.com slash audio drop if you'd like to uh, be on the show or just say hello. And I can be found as TT Scoff just about everywhere on the internet. And, uh, and of course, at brettterpstrad.com. And that has been Systematic Episode 85 with Adam Christensen. Thanks again, Adam. Hey, thank you. It was fun. And we'll see everybody in a week. Thanks for listening.